glad you're here. We're starting a new message series today, and uh, it's a great time to be a part of it, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, we're calling it The Greatest Showman, and I've already kind of got in trouble for the calling of that because we're like, oh, Jesus, like, you're telling us like, Jesus is the greatest showman? Um, no, I'm not. I'm not telling you that, and I don't think that church should be a show either, but I also think that church should be fun, and it should be, uh, and I know this is weird, but I would say entertaining. I, I don't think that church should be boring at all. And, uh, and so today might be like, oh, we're going to go to hell for this. Um, you know, it's like they're, you're all, some of you are very, very nervous people today uh, because uh, you've smiled already in church and you hadn't done that for a long time. And so, uh, but we're going to take a look over the next several weeks of the miracles that Jesus does. And he does do some pretty showy things. And the reason he's doing that is not to draw a crowd. He's not doing that to, to get people like, oh, uh, he, um, he is doing that to show people who he is. And so, so if you will hang with us over the next five weekends, you're going to learn more about Jesus because we're going to take a look at his miracles and, and it should be a lot of fun. I've always liked uh, magic and, you know, that kind of thing and and my, my brother, he was really good at magic, and, and by really good, we could fool the neighborhood kids. And so he did. He would buy magic tricks and learn them, practice them, and do all that kind of stuff. And then we would have a magic show in our basement, and Brian would charge a dime to come to it. And, and uh, we thought we were going to be rich. I was his marketing director, and, uh, and, and typically, basically all we got was we, uh, like a freeze pop or something. That's the amount of money we got. But... I love, like, even on TV, the, you know, the America's Got Talent, if it's a magician, I go, la, 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 la. hey, check this out. I'm totally fascinated by all that stuff. And I would like to think that I probably would have wanted to go and hang around Jesus just, just to see what was going to happen next. Let's take a look at the very first miracle that Jesus does. John chapter 2, verse 1. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and the disciples were invited to the celebration. So it's kind of significant here. We don't really know who got married, but it probably is a family member. And it's quite possible that Mary was an aunt, right, to the kid. And so this is a big deal, and Jesus is there, and his disciples. Now, he doesn't have all of them yet. He just has just recruited the first five. So they're there, and this is a big deal. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, uh, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem. That seems kind of harsh, right? Like, that's not my wedding. I thought this was supposed to be a cash bar anyway. I don't, what are we doing here? See, already you're nervous. <laughs> Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, Fill those jars up with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions, which, by the way, is exactly what every follower of Jesus should be doing. 
right? That's the, one of the greatest commentaries for anybody who's following Jesus, right? Now, these guys weren't following. They were just servants. So what is servants supposed to do? Whatever they're told. It's fascinating to me that servants of Christ, we, we're like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Check this out. Love this. And the jars have been filled. Now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. Like the old Milwaukee. Bring out the old Milwaukee. We've been here for a while. Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Actually, all of you do. What, 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 what. A host always serves the best wine first. Then when he has, everyone has a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But when he has kept the best, but you have kept the best until now. Which is the point of the miracle? We'll get to it. You have kept the best until now. The miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. Now, what is surprising to you about this moment here in the life of Jesus? Is it, is it that he does a miracle or is it that he's at a party? So you're like, Jesus at a party? Uh, how boring is that? Like, I mean, do you really want Jesus at your party? Someone's like, no, I don't want him at my party. How boring is that? Like, people are back in the back, like, Jesus is here. Oh, yeah. Uh, so lame. Such a goody two shoot. He literally is, right? He's like, <laughs> I got invited to a party recently. Uh, a guy in the church is there having this hay rack ride. He's like, hey, a whole bunch of people from the church are going to be there. You should come. He says, but, but it'll make them all really nervous. <laughs> I really, truly wanted to go. I had another event that night, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if I show up at the Ponderosa? And uh, they're like, oh, hi, Pastor. We will be at church tomorrow. Father, forgive us. I mean, they didn't, you, you don't know what to say at that moment, right? It's like your pastor's at this... And I truly thought, I don't want to be a party pooper, right? I, that, that if people are like super nervous because my presence, like my, like my presence is going to be bothersome, right? But see, oftentimes that's what we think. It's like somebody's going to judge me. Somebody's going to like, hey, knock it off. See, Jesus is at a party and he never says those words. He doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus, the party got better because Jesus was there. The party always gets better because Jesus is there. So they're at this party. It's a wedding party. It's a big honking deal. Weddings are a big deal. Even today, they're a big deal. The average cost for a wedding in the United States is $25,000. $25,000. Now, you should be grateful that you don't live in Australia because in Australia, it's $65,000 for a wedding. What are they doing? 
I don't know. In Elkhorn, the average price for a wedding in our like little area around us, here, $33,000. The pastor gets a hundred bucks. hundred bucks. So I'm going to start a union. <laughs> I figure we get all the pastors in Omaha like, hey, we're not doing your wedding for 100 bucks anymore. It's 10% of what you're spending. <laughs> you guys will all hang together. We're going to form. We're going to march. We're going to protest. We're going we're gonna to get our due because like, uh, like $33,000. What is going on? Weddings in the first century were a big deal, too. People saved for months and months, sometimes years, to be able to host an amazing event. And everybody around in all the community, especially in here, this little place in Cana, Galilee, would have been filled with lots of folks because when life is so hard, and their life was very, very hard, Jesus' family was at extreme poverty level. So a little bit of good food and good wine went a long ways. They looked forward to this event all here. It was a happy time, but soon became a sad time. It was kind of an embarrassing time. The wine had run out. Typically, what would happen at a wedding feast is like, this is a big deal. The, the wedding couple, uh, and I found this was fascinating. Like, the wet, like, if you are a virgin, you got married on Wednesday, but if you weren't, you got married on a Thursday. So the wedding invitations go out like, Ooh, it's on a Thursday. <laughs> Awkward. Okay. They go to this wedding ceremony. They'd have this great, you know, thing. And, and then the people would line the streets with their torches and, you know, lights and usher the couple all the way to their honeymoon spot and then leave, of course. And the next day, the party goes crazy here, and they have a week-long celebration of an incredible holy and happy occasion. But the wine runs out. The rabbis had a saying, without wine, there is no joy. Now, this was not a time to get drunk. Drunkenness was a great disgrace. But to run out of wine was an embarrassment to a family, and maybe this family just didn't have enough money to pay for all the folks that came. don't know. So Mary comes to Jesus for some help. And she asked Jesus, hey, we ran out of wine. And just like, hey, that's not, you know, it's like, wait a minute. Um, dear woman, that's not our problem. And the, the phrase, dear woman, that, man, that's kind of bothersome. I read that and like, it seems super cold, like dear woman. And then I, uh, I found uh, that, that he uses that phrase later on in John chapter 19, verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. Now, he was on the cross when he said that. This is the words he says to his mom on the cross. It's not a word, it's not, it's, he's not pushing her off. He is giving her an incredible amount of respect and honor at that very moment. She asked him to help. I don't think that he was at, she was asking for him to do a miracle. I don't think she was like, hey, Jesus, do your thing now. Um, whatever. Make it happen. We need some wine. I think she was asking him to solve the problem. 
but he had not done miracles. He wasn't showing off. But he takes this opportunity to kick things into gear. Fill up jars for the water. The, there's, there's, there's these big uh, jars that they would use to help wa- wash people's feet and ceremonial cleansing, that kind of stuff. And they would hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. So they're probably empty. And so they're going to take them and fill them up. And it takes quite a bit of effort because 20 to 30 gallons, they're not taking the hose and filling up. So they're carrying these down probably to the the public well that's usually outside of the city and they fill it up and at probably eight pounds per gallon, it's a load to carry this stuff. So when the servants come back, they're sweaty and wet and they place it down and they get the master of the ceremonies and they scoop it out and he goes, wow, this is amazing. You've saved the best for last. Everyone is happy. Everyone's happy with 120 gallons of wine. There's more than enough. That's what it's like with Jesus, that there's more than enough. They're not having to water it down. They're not having to ration it out. They're not having to say, I'm sorry, but we don't have enough. You should probably just go home. The Greeks had a God of wine, and they had a similar story. The Greek god Dionysus had a story that he showed up at a festival and filled up three little empty kettles full of wine. What a weak god. It was just a made-up story, too. The Greeks knew, hey, we're just making up stories. But this, Jesus, Jesus, this is, in fact, we will teach that the miracles were not some sort of made up fairy tale, that he was a real person to do real stuff. And in fact, he, he brought 120 gallons of wine. Why is that significant? Because if John wrote that down, there'd be a bunch of people in Canaan of Galilee who said, he never did any of that stuff. I was at that wedding. It was boring and it didn't happen. We left early. He didn't turn water into wine and they would have been able to dispute this story all over the region. But what people were saying, like, that was an amazing, that was amazing, that was awesome, that was a party, that was a party. We thought it was going to be lame because Jesus was there. It got a lot better because the impossible, the impossible became true. You see, without, life, without Jesus, life is pretty dull. Without Jesus, it's like a party without good wine. Life is flat and stale and cheap and empty. But with him, life is, a, life is a party. I really think that life should be a lot more like a party than we think it's supposed to be. Typically, when we think of church or Christians, we don't think of people having a good time. It's as if the Christians filled up their baptistry and drank out of it, and it was lemon juice. You ever seen Christians like, mm. right? It's just, we have this sour look on our face. In fact, all the time, we're nervous people. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, the thief's purpose is to steal. Now, this is Jesus talking, right? So this is Jesus. The thief's purpose. So who's the thief? 
The thief is Satan. So Satan's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy your party. That's his purpose. He wants to steal and kill and destroy your life. Jesus says, my purpose, this will, here we go. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying or full life. That's Jesus' purpose. Bob Goff in his book, Everybody Always, and by the way, you should read everything that Bob Goff ever writes. Amazing author, incredible communicator. So get your hands on anything he writes. Follow him on Twitter, do whatever you have to do. And uh, in this book, he tells about a party that he throws for his neighbors every year on New Year's Day. And it's a parade. And his family wakes up very early every New Year's Day and blow up a thousand balloons with helium before heading out to the parade. And the parade's purpose is to thank their neighbors for being their neighbors. That's it. And he says, I want to love my neighbors, but I didn't know who they were, so this was my attempt at getting to know them. The parade has been going on now for over 20 years. It had a very humble beginning because there was only eight who gathered the first time. They started walking down the streets and they waved to the six neighbors who came out to see what was going on. <laughs> now there are over four to 500 people that show up for this parade every year. And there's no fancy floats, just kids pulling wagons and riding their bicycles. And that's the amount of planning that's involved. Because they have been putting this parade on now. They now know their neighbors and they know their lives. About a week before the parade happens, they go around and they take a poll. Who should be the master of ceremonies and who should be the queen? And it's a big deal to be the queen. Carol got the nod one year and he says, 10 years later, people still bow to her in the market or at the gas station and call her your majesty. One year, Carol didn't think she could make it down the parade route because of the cancer that was ravaging her body. Bob decided that Carol should still go, so he placed her in the sidecar of his motorcycle and drove her down the parade route. Just before they got to the end, she looked up at Bob and said, Bob, I'm really going to miss this parade. Bob said, I looked at her and said, me too, Carol, me too. A year later, on New Year's Day, Carol is clinging to life by a few threads, far too weak to get out of her bed. She had made it to the day of parade. Just before the parade got started, they carried her to a chair that had been placed in front of her living room window so she could see the parade. Carol could hear the music, but what she didn't know is that the route had been changed to go right in front of her living room window. 500 people, friends and neighbors, walked up to that window, waved to her, carrying their balloons. And as they did, Carol blew them all kisses and waved to them. And a few days later, Carol had another parade as Jesus welcomed her into heaven. You see, I think heaven is going to be a lot more like a parade or a wedding than anything else. And if living here on earth is preparation for heaven, then life should start being a lot more like a parade or a wedding. Jesus came to bring us life, not just eternal life, but life here and now and life to the full. My guess is that when John is writing this down, he included this story because it was the first of many miracles, but because for him, he was saying wherever Jesus is, it's like 
turning water into wine. Wherever Jesus is, it's like turning water into wine. And if Jesus will come into your life, it will be like turning water into wine. You have been settling for water when you could have been having wine. Most of the time we think of Christians, Christianity with a lot of rules and regulations, a lot of thou shalt nots. You see, Jesus doesn't prohibit food or drink or entertainment or recreation or sex. Now, he does say if there's a designer and the creator of all these things, that if you decide to go your own way on any of these things, what you're going to find is more water than wine. You're going to find more disappointment than fun more regret than anything else. See, in the Christian life, there will be times of joy and there will be times of sorrow. There'll be laughter and there'll be some tears. But what I hope for every single one of us is that our life will be full of celebration. Let's pray. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much for bringing to earth a party. We've been looking for that for a long time. Had no idea. Perhaps even right now, somebody is going to invite you to their party. Make it better. Make it full of laughter and joy. Not emptiness and disappointment. Perhaps even now, the impossible will come true. In Christ we pray, amen.